Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Alicia. I'm really happy to be here. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I kind of, I'm one of these uh, weird army brat uh, human beings that sort of grew up um, in between uh, several different worlds. Um, (laughs) So I uh, grew up uh, between South Georgia and Germany, which was uh, a really interesting combination to flip flop between. Um, And I also grew up in the 70s and 80s. I'm a little older than I think some people sometimes realize. and uh, so I kind of grew up in that golden age of um, everything being processed and a lot of fast food. And it was when you could, I don't know, I think that we call, we could all pretend uh, in, in that moment in time that it was not as bad, bad for us as it actually was. And by and large, it probably actually wasn't as bad for us as it is now. I think that, you know, um, you know mass production of food has gotten significantly worse as far as our nutritional um, needs go. But anyway, uh, so I kind of grew up flopping between Europe and South, uh, South Georgia. And I, I think it's important to quantify like South Georgia, because I can't just say the South because uh, South Georgia is a significantly um, specific part of the South um, and the ways that it's like incredibly, uh, what's the nicest way of putting it? Rural, but also um, not in a quaint kind of way. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, I, and I grew up on army bases. So, you know, my parents dropped out of high school, were enlisted people. And so we kind of grew up in, you know, this the, kind of slumming it on army bases, my childhood. And so um, knowing all of that, like, it was just sort of this weird combination of what was accessible to us from like the commissary on the on the military bases, which is just like one big warehouse grocery store that everyone shops at on a military base. And um, the really interesting thing about growing up on a military base is that you are typically, um, well, not typically, yeah, I mean, almost entirely, you are amongst uh, like most of your friends' mothers are foreign women. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's just a real, it's a real uh, kind of incredible collection of cultures. And so the commissary ends up representing that. So you would go down the, the, the aisle for cereal and you would have, you know, things that, you know, um, Filipino women had requested from from their you know from their homeland. So we grew up kind of with these really great uh, multicultural shopping experiences in our grocery store, but we were still white Southerners, and so we bought you know our I'll grab potatoes, and we bought our mm-hmm. you know uh, spaghettios, and so I grew up in a really typical way, even though I kind of grew up mostly in Germany. Um, but that afforded me opportunities anytime we would go off post, which was a significant amount to, you know, explore and try things and have experiences that I, you know, I think most American kids don't get to have, you know, growing up, obviously, if they're not um, traveling overseas. So uh, it was this sort of weird, you know, bifurcated experience of being like wholly American and of Southern people and also being exposed to uh, all kinds of food. So it was really interesting. And I think that's probably 
uh, you know, all of those experiences, walking into houses and smelling different smells and, and seeing the different foods being cooked by my friend's moms and um, sometimes their dads, depending on, you know, um, who was sort of the, 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 the soldier in the family. Um, and in my day and age, it was typically the father, but occasionally, um, you know, they would have a working mother. It wasn't that common. Um, but it was, I can just remember walking into a lot of my friends' houses and, you know, their Taiwanese mother cooking food and, and just, I think being exposed to those smells at a really young age is really important. So yeah, it was an interesting, uh, definitely created, um, you know, some interesting, uh, qualities and character traits in me (laughs) where, you know, I really like, I really like trashy food sometimes. And I really, really enjoy, um, really incredible, thoughtful, um, you know, culturally significant food experiences. Right. Right. I feel, I feel like that's, you know, the, the suburban U S experience, no matter what, maybe, I mean, depending on where you grew up, I guess. Right. Is, is this really interesting? Yeah, this really like split kind of identity in your food world <laughs> that can manifest um, because of what we're what we're given and what we see, you know, depending on on where we live. Yeah. But I think you know you're the first person I've had on who I could talk to about this. But you're in your book, you talk about Catholicism and mysticism, and the title mm-hmm. itself is, you know, a very Catholic reference. Um, and so how did these take yeah. root in your life and, and how do they continue to manifest, uh, if at all? Um, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think Catholicism is a thing you can right. easily shake off. <laughs> no matter how much. Well, uh, uh, so yeah, they still do manifest. Uh, you know, I come from uh, a really rich culture of um, a very specific kind of Catholic tradition, which is steeped in, you know, my mother being a Mexican woman and her mother being a Mexican woman. And um, and if there were any uh, cultural, uh, if there were if there were any Mexican cultural. Um, habits that we can maintained, um, even though there was, you know, a really dis- you know, disheartening and sad um, erasure that my grandmother felt she had to really fix for her kids of, uh, you know, going as far as I, I think the word is pretending, pretending they weren't, you know, brown people in this world. Um, but the one thing that I think she never could forsake was um you know, her culture, her, her Catholic traditions. So those were the moments, I think, for me where I got to experience, um, I feel like who my grandmother actually was as a person. You know, she uh, mostly prayed in Spanish and she, um, you know, she, you know, and I talk a lot about this in the book where, you know, we most, a, a lot of our conversations were about, we're, we're, we're kind of sort they were, they were, and I, this is the first time I've ever said it this way. It's interesting that it's coming out, but a lot of our conversations kind of felt like prayers with each other, like collective prayers. Like we, I, I just remember having a lot of moments with her where we would just sit. And I guess what I'm, what I'm realizing now is that we were just praying together and I thought we were just having conversations, but you know, she was, uh, always had a rosary. She was a, a really deeply religious woman. And, um, you know, she would sew little medals of saints into my clothes. And there was a lot of this sort of, um, I don't know, a superstition feels like a shallow way of explaining it, but you know, 
there were just details about our lives that, you know, uh, were, it was very common to me to uh, know that if I was going out to play, I would have to say like, I'm going out to play, but I couldn't walk out the door because I knew she or my mother was on their way to meet me at the door to put holy water on my head. Those kinds of things, you know, these like these kinds of moments where like I had to sit there and wait um, for, you know, basically the, the 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 ultimate protection to go out into the world, which was my grandmother's, you know, Pope blessed bottle of holy water. <laughs> And, um, and so I think those kinds of things, you know, stick with you for a long time. And at the idea that um, you're, you know, the people that have passed away from your family or are, are literally like, sometimes it feels like they're sitting in the room with you. You know, it's, it's those kinds of constant, con- you know, conversations of um, connectivity with each other. Um, and even though I lost her when I was 10 I think I think the ways in which I still feel like I can connect best with her are those moments of just like you know statuary Catholic statuary moves me churches move me uh, mass Catholic mass I think I will always just fall apart in the Catholic mass because I think it it taps something um I don't know it 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 uh there's there's some little little window little doorway in me that only gets opened when when certain songs are being sung and certain chants are being sung and even though I uh, am absolutely not a Catholic anymore and don't practice Catholicism I haven't raised my children Catholic um, you know there are rituals that are really really deeply ingrained in me that still feel like sometimes the only ways I can connect with um my women, you know, my mother and my grandmother. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of a, a, a muddy answer to, uh, there's, there's a lot of ways I can answer that, but that one feels like the most significant, I think. One of my favorite pieces of your writing was for food and wine about how your notebook showed that you were becoming a pastry chef mm-hmm. before you even knew it consciously. Um, do you still keep notebooks and what has it been like to transition mm-hmm. from the kitchen to writing in a more formal way? Like how how have those notebooks influenced your kind of becoming a writer? Yeah, in that more commercial or traditional sense? Uh, yeah, I still keep notebooks. And I think, you know, I think I would have eventually picked up the habit had I not sort of started this endeavor as a writer um you know but i think the the notebooks i think were always on me anyway because i you know i I was a writer before i was ever a baker and i just you know never had sort of the 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 luxury or the privilege of like just being a full-time writer you know i'm very much um (laughs) very much uh, of the working class and so you know finding a job that both was really, um, you know, creatively fulfilling and also, you know, had the potential to help me build financial security was really significant. And, it, you know, writing never felt like that in my 20s or 30s. You know, it felt yeah. like I really had to um, find some different work to do in order to sort of justify or earn the right to write full time, which is, you know, 20 something years later now where I finally find myself, which is a really great feeling. But um so the notebook sort of happened because I had always kept notebooks anyway, almost like a sketchbook. Um, but, you know, when you get into a certain level of 
kitchen work, everyone keeps a notebook, keeps recipe books, keeps, you know, keep, ta- you know, they keep notes about, uh, you know, the, their process of cooking, the technique, the, you know, the, the data for the day, the, the systems, the, the hour, you know, a lot of my notebooks now are like, um, Claudette's hours for Monday. So a lot of it gets like junked up with just, I just needed a piece of paper. And, but those are also nice mementos <laughs> back on, um, you know, after all these years of like, um, I can remember at the time sort of cringing because I was like, oh, I'm going to really regret filling these pages with, you know, day-to-day business and like the, the, you know, goat milk deliverer's phone number. But now those are these really sweet mementos to find in the, um, in the little pages between, but um, I still keep notebooks. I'll always keep notebooks. In fact, I probably need to spend some time <laughs> this quarantine getting my notebooks reorganized because I, as I'm talking to you, I'm literally looking around and uh, I mean, I'm, there's like five different walls of notebooks just stacked up in front of me. So I need to get, <laughs> I probably need to sort of get some sort of organizational <laughs> system together. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, and it did start to inform, I think, uh, the the trans just the transition from cooking full time to writing full time because what it allowed me to do was have these, um, you know, have these have these basically these these diaries, these journals, uh, and it's not to say that I uh, necessarily kept, uh, you know, like. January 5th, this happened today, but there were definitely, there's a, there's a pretty good mix of recipe development and frustrated Lisa in a kitchen who just needed to crank out some prose in the bathroom instead of crying at her station, you know? (laughs) Um, And so there's this kind of great combination of, of that in all of these books. And then I just realized eventually it became more of the writing and, um, you know, and then eventually I, I found my way out of kitchens. And so the notebooks became um, mostly about writing projects and ideas. And, you know, you'll hear, you're, you'll hear, you'll be sitting at a, a bus stop and you'll hear someone say something and you write it down really quick because it's the kind of quote you could never imagine forgetting, you know? And so um, they're by no means uh, the most organized uh, <laughs> system, but they are mine. And yes, I still keep them. <laughs> Yeah. No, I found for myself too is like once I stop putting kind of a stop trying to impose order on my own notebooks, they became a lot more useful to me. Like, you know, where I wasn't like, this is a to do list, this is a journal, like, this is where I work on recipes. Like, once it all kind of came together, I feel like I, I, my brain started to actually, uh, use them more creatively, I guess, and, and, and actually feel more free on the page because that order wasn't like self-imposed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think you you can give yourself a space where I hate to use the word messy because I do think that there's some, there is something about keeping a notebook in that way. And the same way that you're talking about keeping a notebook that actually does help Mm -hmm. me organize my thoughts for the project itself. So it gives me a space to sort of, not brain dump, but just sort of be a little messy and be a little, um, I don't know, a little wilder on the page than I would ever give myself permission to be when I start a project outright. You know, if I know I have to write an essay, there's always that like initial fear of uh, being uh, as loose and as um, 
I don't know, for me anyway, you know, I, I, I definitely right. need these spaces to sort of embarrass myself and no one will see it and then go to the page, <laughs> go to the page and sort of have a little bit more structure in place for, for that starting point. I, I wish I could just, you know, I think that was one of the hardest parts about writing this book for me was, especially as a, you know, a retired slash recovering pastry chef is, you know, I definitely got to a station in my career where I was not, you know, uh, you know, in a kitchen, you try to sort of work within certain parameters of what you know you're good at. And that allows you a lot of freedom to sort of um, create things that you hope to put on the menu, but you never show that process to anybody. You show people the right. plated dessert and then you have a conversation about what needs to be worked out or what needs to be amped up or whatever measure of that dessert needs to change. But it's, it's, you know, you never show it to anybody until you're, you're pretty confident about its success already. So like starting a right. project as big as a book, you, you know, and you have these editors, I had these two really wonderful editors on this book and, you know, they, they kept urging me like just show us the shit, man, just bring it, show us, <laughs> show us like your worst. And I'm like, I can't, I don't know how to do that. So, so much of this uh, writing of this book was about me uh, trying to sort of relearn uh, how to let go of my, I think, creative control um, habits that I've established. So the notebooks help with that significantly. Right. No, I've, I've interviewed, I think a couple of pastry chefs or former pastry chefs who are also, you know, consider themselves writers that, I mean, are writers like, you know, but also like I self-identify as such. And so it does seem that there is a complementary thing there between pastry mm -hmm. and writing. I don't know if you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so funny. You, you know, you find, um, <laughs> You know, for a long time, I didn't meet a lot of other pastry chefs because pastry chefs are, you know, especially in, especially in the time I was coming up, you know, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't, you know, it wasn't this, you know, we were in a kitchen working by ourselves, you know, and that was pretty much the extent <laughs> of our experiences. And, um, and then the world got a little, uh, you know, more accessible and smaller and you could all of a sudden communicate with chefs in New York and San Francisco and LA and and then you would find yourself getting invited to these events where um, you're amongst 20 pastry chefs, which was crazy. And, and you would, and you guys would start talking about yourselves and your work and how you found yourself to pastry. And it was really funny. It sort of became a joke. It was like you were either uh, a writer or a dancer, or you had been a writer or a dancer. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of like the two categories that pastry chefs <laughs> fell into was I'm a recovering <laughs> ballet dancer, <clears throat> or I am an aspiring writer. Like those were the two, or you're, you're some right. combination of both, which is also like, a, like, that's, that's, that's my combination. That's Phyllis Grant's combination. Like there are definitely right. people out there <laughs> who are a strange combination of both. So it's really interesting. It definitely, pulls a certain uh, personality towards it that's for sure right 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 um so you have used baking <clears throat> sort of as a political tool and and so have many very recently and, and in history why do you think baked goods specifically are such an effective tool for fostering these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. for fundraising for protest 
Well, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fast track to your community, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most, it's one of the friendliest, most accessible ways to, uh, I think, get people involved who, you know, uh, might not have the courage or the tools or the privilege to know how otherwise. I think, you know, you're making it, um, you're making it, it's, it's a generous way of helping people meet the, the, the moment, meet the movement, meet the revolution. And um, I mean, you can go back and talk about, you know, the significance of like the, the, the hearth and the, in, in, in the context of human culture and how that's always been the center right. of um, communities. And I think there's something really significant, you know, in that, in that regard. Um, but I think the real, just the real clutch of it is that's, it's just a, it's just a really easy way to reach people, right? Like you get access to people. Right. You, um, and there's something comforting about, um, uh, about baked goods, obviously, that um, I think speaks to the, the generosity of humans. And I, I don't, you know, and I just think there's some pow- there's a lot of power in feeding someone, you know, there's a lot of power in feeding someone. Um, and I just, I think it helps you gain access to, um, some people that might otherwise just sort of sit on their hands and be a little scared or, you know, or a little unsure right. of how to participate in these really important conversations, you know. So the people that I see turn up at, you know, bake sales are both, you know, definite like street pounders who go out there and protest and, and are active in, in like the most righteous, amazing ways. And then a lot of them, though, are, you know, women that you know have have you know eight kids and are exhausted and the best they can do is show up and buy you know some brownies and you know and and buy as many as possible so that they are hopefully making a bigger impact and I you know I see most days you know it's so funny this whole quarantine has been you know like I I'm usually a pretty measured person and I don't tend to extremes I'm I'm deeply pragmatic and I'm <laughs> I'm deeply um, measured uh, in ways sometimes that even frustrate me. Um, I wish that I could. <laughs> I wish sometimes I could go back to, you know, resting on sort of my absolute radicalism. Um, I've definitely matured, and sometimes I'm even frustrated by that. But I recognize something in these moments um, when I when you know anytime I'm ever at one of these bake sales and. And, and a lot of uh, women in particular that um, want to engage and, uh, again, like whether or not they have the, the time or the ability or the, or the courage, you know, and I, I think I think you're just it's a it's a it's a generous way to offer people a place um, to participate in something they seem to truly believe in. So, and then this, you know, I, I've been, uh, <laughs> I try to keep focusing on, on those things, but I'll tell you, man, this, this, uh, this year and this quarantine and these moments have made me a little bit more polarized. Some days I'll feel really hopeful and I'll, fo- I'll focus on women and people like that who, um, you know, keep showing up for every bake sale and, um, and then some days it's harder, you know, so it's interesting. It's just, right. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but I think that's sort of the, um, I think that's the real clutch of it is, you know, it's just a powerful and generous way of helping people 
be involved in something that they might not otherwise know how to, you know? So um, it's, it's, it's accessibility. It's real easy to get people to show up when there's sugar and butter involved. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, recently, and I'm I'm sure that my taking note of this is just <coughs> about my own preoccupations. But you you tweeted about mezcal being a truth serum and, and <laughs> complaints about food media, like which you know food media consistently disappointing. There is a new uh, appointment of editor in chief at Bon Appetit. That so was hopefully great. That there was, is yeah yeah there is some hopefully there is some newness yeah. um, being injected into the the whole shebang. Um, mm-hmm. but do you think there is a way for food writing to kind of shed its very patriarchal white gaze, um, and the, get rid of, stop prioritizing the greatness of, of male chefs always over, mm. over the, at the expense really of anyone else? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of going back to like what I was just saying about your much easier question about bake sales is like, you know, I'm, <laughs> I mean, well, like, uh, I was having a hard time even answering that question with any optimism. So this question's going to be a real downer. So sorry, pre apologies, but like, I'm just, you know, I'm not in a, in an incredibly optimistic phase of uh, this year right now. And um, I don't know, you know, I mean, what I want to say is look to Stephen Satterfield, look to Kat Kinsman, look to these new appointments being made. And I, I, I think right now I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm really acutely focused um, on <laughs> the system that those people are still up against. We haven't undone the system. Right. And like, and I, I, I guess I'm just feeling discouraged in this moment because, you know, this book has brought so many really beautiful opportunities and really so many incredible, I mean, I don't like to dwell on the small people um, that, <laughs> can otherwise like jank up a good opportunity and good experience and good uh, platform to talk about the things that we need to talk about. But the, it also is an opportunity to talk about the things we need to talk about because so much of what I'm seeing. Um, so just to sort of be really clear, because I'm talking and I'm talking around it right now because it's such a, it's such a bummer to talk about, but like, look, do I think that we're ready to stop <laughs> prioritizing like the male ego and like, uh, are we, are we actually pulling ourselves out of the system that the patriarchy and misogyny has built? No, I, I like, I'm, 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 I'm really starting to sort of feel this deep sense of frustration about, um, you know, like I'm facing this whole situation, right, in Nashville. And and again, I want to I want to emphasize that this is a really small small minority of people in this town. Um, but there's like you know supposed supposedly liberal women in my community. Uh, you know, women <laughs> who fancy themselves anti-racist in the world. And if you were to go on their uh, Instagram pages, you would, you know you might not take much notice because, you know, they have 12 followers and they're sort of shouting into an echo chamber, but like they can't even deal with sort of their own accountability in this moment. And instead of actually trying to have some conversations that do uh, the actual work of anti-racism and undoing internalized misogyny, that's not a thing that they even know how to address. So like, you know, 
I'm feeling this sort of ultimate frustration because I'm watching in real time that it's easier and more reflexive for people to protect a wounded white male chef ego uh, in my own community. Someone who, like, frankly, I was incredibly generous with in my book because my aim for this book wasn't to indict anyone, but to really deal with my own internalized misogyny. And uh, instead, they'd rather elevate his narrative, a white male narrative that's very egocentric and very based in his uh, his uh, image in our community. Um, and, and that's what they're conditioned to believe. Instead of hearing a woman's experience and believing a woman's experience, and in this case, my experience, I mean, sounds familiar, right? Like, <laughs> like a woman tells a story, <laughs> spends three years, you know, putting together a collection of her experiences. Um, and their reflex is to call me a liar, uh, because it hurts his feelings, instead of trying to think about the bigger point, uh, and the bigger conversation of a, of a white woman facing down the bull, like the bullshit that she's both dealt with and contributed to like her whole adult life. And I don't know, I mean, and maybe, you know, maybe it's an opportunity for them to do the same. Um, because that's the way through to actual anti-racist work and, and cultural change and shifting societal norms. And, um, that's the real thing they have to deal with in order to do the work they say they think needs to happen, but they won't. Uh, so instead, they'll go through the motions and look like the good white liberals, but the conversation has to be about how to dismantle the system that actually built these sexist and racist infrastructures that they're so incredibly mouthy about fighting on, you know, about fighting on the Instagram, right? So like, I mean, they're kind of just a lesser degree of the white women who vote for whomever they're like, MAGA hat wearing white husbands vote for to protect their station in life. And, and, and so I get fixated on sort of like, yeah, we can, re we can keep replacing people, but you know, there are people and these people aren't in any kind of power. The ones I'm dealing with, the ones that are, you know, trying to sort of uh, devalue the, 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 my book in our community because it hurt this one white male chef's feelings. Um, and literally calling me a liar in our community, which is one too far for me, which is why I'm a little riled up about it. Because you cannot like the book. I don't give a fuck. You can disagree with the book. I don't give a fuck. But to like go out there and sort of perpetuate this habit of calling women liars because they've shared their stories is such an insidious part of the, the systems that we're trying to undo right now. And so when you ask a question about like, are, you know, is the food, uh, is the food media industry ready to make these changes? Fuck, man, I don't, I can't even see it in my community right now. So like the, the whole industry beats me. I don't know. I, I like some days, some days I feel way more hopeful. Um, but today I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't really see it because, you know, I think, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I Again, like I want my answer to be like, look at all the people that are out there really doing the work. I think you're doing the work. I think Stephen Satterfield's doing the work. I think there are people out here who are doing the work that needs to be center stage. Um, but I just I think that we're still dealing with such a really deeply problematic structural systemic uh, problems in just who we are as a culture that uh, no matter how uh, successful this book becomes, for example, or how successful the Bone App might become. Um, you know, I, I just worry that we're always going to have this like part of our culture that can't meet the conversation. And, um, 
and that's obvious with people who are so clearly opposed to what we're trying to do, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not foolish enough mm-hmm. to think like the whole world's going to get on board with, you know, this movement. But I think the real reason it worries me is that there are people out there masquerading as, you know, uh, liberals who are trying to advance the conversation of, for example, anti-racism or anti-sexism, the movements that we're all out here trying to have conversations about uh, that are actually still actively contributing to them in real time. And so, you know, today I'm just not feeling incredibly generous about the shit I'm seeing. So sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, I rarely ever feel optimistic about the state of things. So, you know, no there's. Needed. There's so so much of of me that really always tries to stay on the hopeful uh, side, and really, I, I really try to mine for uh, hopefulness. And I do see, you know, I do see the potential in this moment. I really do. Uh, I just, <clears throat> I just, I think there's so much bullshit out there, and so many people masquerading as uh, something that's actually going to make it so much harder for us for for the world to get where they need to go with this conversation so no for sure um i mean i didn't intend to talk about this but i don't know how you felt about the washington post piece that charlotte truckman wrote um about numerous memoirs and kind of naming including yours of course and 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 naming whiteness in it but she got a lot of backlash to it because mm-hmm. she is white and i i thought that that was kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of the conversations that uh, we're supposed to be having right now where you know you can there's certainly things to critique about any piece of writing or any piece yeah. of work but at the same time to say that a white woman who's benefited from her whiteness mm-hmm. is not allowed at this moment to interrogate the whiteness of an industry um and it, it's like well who should be doing that work like is that work we're supposed to be putting on the shoulders of of black women of brown mm-hmm. women or is that mm-hmm. It, it, no, this is the work that we're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. among ourselves, I thought. Yeah. Um, well, but it was, you know, it was a very interesting reaction. It was an interesting reaction. I, I, was, I thought it was really interesting um, on a couple of different counts, right? Like, I think uh, I, I think I benefited from knowing uh, as someone, excuse me, who she interviewed, knowing what her intentions were. And I thought... I thought that she tried to sort of reach a conversation that needed to be had. Um, And, you know, I think, I think the thing that, that I think was problematic for me, and this is the first time I've ever spoken about it. And I've actually, you know, Charlotte's a, a, a pal and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think I wish that I would have <laughs> said this to her first, but I've been thinking about it, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, because I've definitely had people come to me saying, what the fuck did you think about that? What the fuck did you think about that? And I thought, well, yeah. I know what her intention was. I understand the conversation she was trying to have. Um, and it is a valid conversation. I think the thing that keeps lingering for me is um, a, more of a conversation about uh, class and uh, privilege. Right. Um, and for someone, you know, uh, 
I'm not sure how we start having conversations about, uh, or if we even should, uh, start having com- conversations simultaneously about class privilege uh, with race privilege. Um, but I think there's some deeper vein of of uh, uh, of the conversation that she missed, and that was a little frustrating for me, who has been uh, someone in the world who has you literally, um, you know, <laughs> fought and earned, you know, from a place of, you know, damn near almost poverty to sort of like support a family and earn and be a, a, a working class person who earned the right to be a creative class person. Like there's a conversation there for me about the privilege of being a creative class person. And I think the, the if there was a rub for me there, it was that that came from, frankly, a, you know, Manhattanite who has some class privilege in this world, who's, you know, like, I'm not, you know, and and I don't want to speak disparagingly about Charlotte and her experiences, but I think if there was a rub there for me, it was like that there was not a lot of room for her to sort of address, um, I don't know, to be categorized in a way, frankly, of like, uh, this was just something that got thrown to me because I happened to be a white woman and that I didn't work for 30 years mm-hmm. to earn it was a little bit of a rub from a woman who's been a, who's been privileged enough to be a writer in Manhattan her whole life, you know, like that to me was the rub. And I, and I, I think I was less concerned about a white woman talking about <clears throat> white privilege from, you know, I, I understand that argument, but I think the rub for me was sort of assuming that I just sort of materialized and got this book deal. And this was intentional. This was my hard work. This was my, you know, working for $8 an hour right, while raising two kids, you know, f- four jobs at a time sometimes. Like this was a, and this was not an accident. This was, this was my dedication to a goal. And so I think there's a conversation there about, earning your right to be a member of the creative class because the creative class is very different space than the working class space I have lived in my whole adult life. Um, so I, you know, that to me felt like a little bit of a, a miss. And if I was rubbed by anything, it was that, you know? No, for sure. And yeah, I mean, there's just so much nuance that gets lost in these conversations. That's right. Too, That's because, right. That's right. I mean, the, I mean, th- we have to think of everything as intersectional. It's not just it's not just one thing ever. It's not just gender. It's not just race. It's it's right. not just class. It's all these things at once. And yeah, it's it's very difficult to have these conversations because, especially when you're trying to have them in public in in a publication, because I mean, kind of as we were saying before, the the com- the culture is in one place and and we're all <laughs> in another place maybe um yeah. especially if we're discussing kind of individual lives you know and i mean i don't know if you've had this experience at all but like i've had this experience where people are constantly you know putting me on lists of like women of color and <laughs> like because yeah. i don't know my dad is a person of color and mm-hmm. so <laughs> like but i'm not and so it's this interesting like i don't people always want to put everyone in 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 yeah. a very tidy narrative, you know. Well, and, I will. Uh, I will tell you. I, yeah. I have. I have. I won't name names, and I won't name publications. But thrice times now, over the last couple of weeks, I have um, been eagerly sought after by writers who wanted to talk about, in particular, the um, 
the, uh, you know, the, like the bake sale efforts and things like that. And it's mostly just, a, you know, it's mostly just funny and anecdotal more than anything, but like they'll get on the phone with me and they will, within the first couple of minutes, um, say, well, you as a woman of color, da, da, da. and I'm like, no, I'm, a, I'm not a woman. And they were like, oh, well, we were sort of thinking about like your Mexican mother. It's like, no, I identify wholly as a white woman. I have been raised as a white woman. I have my experiences are that of a white woman in this world. And I can't tell you how fast they get off the phone with me. It's really funny. And, and, <laughs> uh, and, and so, but I, I've, I've only had a little bit of that experience where I've seen sort of that, hung, right. that hunger for them to tap the right people. So just to kind of speak to what you were speaking to, but yeah, it's interesting. No, it is interesting. And I do feel like there are people who don't want to talk to me when they find out that I don't I identify as a woman of color. And even though, you know, my work is one thing. And I don't know, it's just, it's such a weird space to be in because, mm-hmm. you know, my experiences are of growing up with a brown dad and a white mom. And so like that, of course, influences how I perceive the world. And, right. but it really depends on who a person is, whether they, I mean, this is the whole bullshit of the whole thing, I guess, right? It's like, it depends on a person's perspective, whether they see me as a woman of color or not. Um, yeah. And I never know whether someone what how someone is seeing me you know Mm -hmm. and so I never know whether I'm being regarded as a white woman or if I'm being regarded as as a woman of color of like you know someone of like ethnic ambiguity or whatever so it's like um yeah it's just an interesting thing to have to contend with Mm -hmm. um and yeah I've been trying to just be super vocal about like you know and, and now I have other people kind of when I'm put on a list, you know, by someone who has like a million Twitter followers saying I'm a woman of color and I'm like, I start to have like a mental breakdown about it. Like right. other people deal with it for me, which is That's nice. Good. But like, I don't good. know, it's just such a... Well, I mean, it just goes it, back to sort really of that, that... Well, you know, I think... I think you're getting at sort of the the complexities of how we are learning how to have nuanced conversations in this country. And um, mm-hmm. as <laughs> I don't think we're inherently gifted at it. Um, I'll say that. No. No. <laughs> I think we are failing in a mighty way um, at being, you know, at knowing how to have um, any sort of measured complexities in these conversations. And, um, but I, you know, I, I will say, I think we have to keep trying. And if, and if I can, you know, kind of go back to the Charlotte article, I think she was attempting at having uh, one of those kinds of conversations. And I can see the ways in which people felt frustrated by that article. I can see the ways in which I might've felt frustrated by that article, um, but it, you know, I will be really honest. It was the first time I ever really sat and thought about class disparity as a creative person. You know, I've always lived it. I've always known it. I've always been aware of it, but it really started getting me engaged in a more, uh, I mean, I think, I think if I'm coming at this from any place, it's really interesting, you know, that, that the ways in which the kind of going back to sort of what you were just saying, like kind of the ways in which the world were categorize will categorize you. Um, you know, I had a man, I had a man, um, <laughs> I, I can't even remember his name, but Jesus fucking Christ. He was like a guy in new England and he was, you could tell had some conservative leanings. And I, it was one of the things that I, I did because I was, you know, kind of tasked to do it. And he kept, uh, 
he kept saying what, what you could tell, you could tell what he really wanted to do was to call me an angry feminist. And he couldn't, mm-hmm. he, w- he wouldn't do it, but he kept using the language to, uh, <laughs> to, to sort of suggest it. And he kept saying, well, you're really definitely angry in this book. And, and I was like, well, I'm, I don't actually feel like I am angry in this book. And I, you know, maybe explain to me what you mean. And he felt so threatened by, I think, so many of the things I was talking about. But what it really boiled down to was he ended up saying, like, I mean, what's wrong with, you know, capitalists trying to make money off of their money? And I realized, and then he showed his hand and said, I mean, I own four restaurants. I own, you know, he's a white guy. And he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's a white guy talking about all the sushi restaurants he owns in some New England place. And, and I'm like, um, I'm like, well... Yeah, I guess I said, <laughs> and so then I had to have a conversation with him about, okay, I see why you think I'm angry. I thought you meant, I mean, I didn't say this to him, but I thought I was being categorized as an angry feminist. And what I was actually being categorized for him was an angry, like, labor workers rights, like, <laughs> conversation. Like, for right. me, like, so much of the conversations that I'm trying to have about the restaurant industry reside in in like labor rights and taking care of your work but like taking care of the working class and how this country has essentially built everything on the backs of exploiting the working class and uh and and that was that ended up becoming our conversation um but it just was really interesting to me that he really wanted to sort of categorize me as this uh radicalized angry person because I had an opinion that spoke against uh you know his uh his uh, the, the 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 ways in which he's benefited from our really uh failed right. capitalist structure and system so so yeah I uh yeah it's just been interesting to me also to sort of see uh, how the lack of nuance um, in the world for these deeper, uh, more meaningful conversations about how we actually move forward and make the changes. I, I, I mean, and and I guess that's partly why I brought up, you know, the 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 little uh, collection of of women who are in Nashville that want to go around and call me a liar about this book. Is am I angry about it? Yeah, I'm angry about it. Um, because calling someone a liar is again such a, a a tool, such a trick. It's such a part of of you know of what has kept women down for so many generations. And um, uh, but I think that sort of speaking again to this inability to to think about the nuance of who we are as a culture and who we are as a people and who we are as you know a person in our community when we engage in just these things that you think are somehow protecting what you've earned in your life. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I could talk circles around that all day, but that's, I think, for me right now, sort of the thing that's, you know, a real source of anger and frustration for me right now. Yeah, no, I, I think it would be uh, – it, it, we're way overdue for real conversations about class and media and who's mm-hmm. allowed to mm-hmm. be a member of the media and the creative classes, you call it. So, like, it, yeah, it's just <laughs> – <laughs> it's it's very interesting you know like I I because I grew up on Long Island and and was like New York was right there I feel like it was always so easy for me to be like all right well I'm just you know my goal is to get there yeah to get back there even though 
all of my ancestors left the city <laughs> for the suburbs. But like, um, so it was very easy to imagine that. But then once, you know, I got to my first magazine job and I realized everyone went to Harvard and like everyone, you know, once you realize where all these people come from and it's just such a, a shock always. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and it's such a conversation that's hidden because for most people in media, this is their milieu. This is the, who mm-hmm. they're around all the time. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. people who grew up in money, people who went to Ivy league schools. And so they never even think about it. So I, I think that conversation is, is, is probably going to be a more difficult one to force than other conversations because yeah, <laughs> it's, it's going to need to knock down a lot of walls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it is, it is the, it is the team everyone's trying to play on, you know, it's like, you know, everyone wants to be, uh, you know, wants to be able to make a living the way that that level of, you know, creative class makes a living. And there's some real privilege and luxury to that. And, and um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I just don't know how far we get unless we're willing to sort of address that a lot of this is... Uh, major class disparity conversations and you know and in that you know I don't I don't know I don't know which umbrella which is the umbrella like does the does the conversation of race fall under the convert you know the umbrella of class or does the does the conversation of class fall under the umbrella of race you know it's it's it starts to become like a chicken and egg um conversation for me um but I I I do know you can't have one without the other (laughs) You know, and if no, we, no. If, it has to, everything has to be yeah. exactly. So, if, yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have so much editing to do, Alicia. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for you, is cooking a political act? Uh, uh I think for me, cooking was an act of survival. Uh, and at first it was a, it was an emotional and then a financial act of survival. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you're a woman and a member of the lower income bracket working class sector of a country who, uh, you know, of a country and a system that's absolutely built for you to fail, every act is political or it should be, you know, especially if you're raising kids in that system. Um, you know, it's food's an opportunity to, I mean, to be heard or at least to be seen. Uh, and that's powerful. Uh, it's powerful in a world that might otherwise prefer you stay <laughs> passive and silent and invisible and dumb, you know, and uh, so much of this country really wants that of, um, you know, of us. They want us to stay passive and dumb and invisible. And uh, how much you choose to use whatever your tools are, um, and my tools were food, to amplify your voice is, you know, it's up to you. I mean, I chose to write a fucking book. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think food by nature, obviously, this is such a catchphrase in 2020, food is, you know, definitely, um, gives you access to having political conversations. Um, but for me, I think it came from a, a real space of survival. And I think if if you have any, uh, if you if you care anything about justice, you take your opportunities um, that you <laughs> that you can to to say, 
you know, this, these were the times, these were the moments, these were the experiences where I am wholly aware that the system was built to make me fail. And, um, right. and you say it out loud as much as you possibly can. And if Absolutely. you're lucky, thank you so much. Um, for coming. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you get a book deal and you get to write about it. <laughs> well, thank you again. Well, thank you. It was fun talking to you. I'm sorry. I'm in a, uh, I'm in a, a downtrodden, uh, <laughs> not, not my most hopeful self, uh, way today. So hopefully I didn't muck no, up no. our, <laughs> not at all. Thank you. <laughs>